Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen to Politics Without the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Uh, coming up, uh, we're heading off to the party conferences. Lib Dems are in Bournemouth, uh, Labour are in Liverpool, Tories are in Manchester, and then onwards to uh, the SNP as well. So, we've got the do's and don'ts of party conferences, some top advice from people who've been there, done that, and drunk the warm white wine. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, uh, let's take a look at what's going on in the world with today's columnist panel. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby Purvis. Hello. Hello, Libby, you're there. I'm Rachel Sylvester is here. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. Stop, please. No, no, <laughs> oh, no, happy stop, birthday. Stop. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, uh, big question is, I think the, the, the big exam question is, why can't we build anything? And even when we've decided to build something, we then take much too long doing it, the prices get out of, the, the cost of it gets out of control, and then we say, well, we should stop doing it when it's half done. Uh, obviously, the biggest example of this this week is HS2. Speculation, uh, which is we have to stress, is all that it is, that they might be looking to row back on the, uh, or scrap the, the link from Birmingham to Manchester, slightly awkwardly, because the Conservative Party conference is taking place in Manchester this weekend. Uh, they don't go down very well in Manchester at the best of times. Uh, and uh, there's already, you know, it's already suggested it's not going to even reach Euston. So you're going to have to go to Acton to get on it, which means it'll actually take longer on the high-speed line from central London to Birmingham than it would do if you just went on a normal train. Then today in the Times, you've got the former Deputy Prime Minister Michael Heseltine and former Chancellor George Osborne uniting to write the Times. The scrapping HS2 to Manchester would be a gross act of vandalism. And then up pops Rishi Sunak to really put to bed all of the speculation. 
This kind of speculation that people are you know, making is not right. I mean, we've got spades in the ground, we're getting on and delivering, but across the north, what we're also doing is connecting up all the towns and cities of, uh, in the north, east to west. That's a really important part of how we will create jobs, drive growth across the region, all part of our plans to level up. Free ports are another good example of that, whether that's in Teesside or elsewhere, attracting new investment, new businesses coming in, all good examples of the government levelling up. This speculation is not right. Fascinating. I think the politics of this is what's so interesting yeah. to me, leaving aside the how we're absolutely hopeless at building anything. But, you know, it's. I think the backlash will probably have taken Rishi Sunak and Number 10 aback. So there are the kind of usual suspects who have long been against HS2 in the Tory party. But this backlash has been really very pronounced, including in Rishi Sunak's own cabinet, former Prime Ministers David Cameron, Boris Johnson and former Chancellor uh, George Osborne, as well as Labour figures like Andy Burnham. Um, and I think the danger is you, they, they, what they seem to have been speculating about proposing, as it were, is that you're almost a sort of the worst of all worlds, where you have this kind of train to nowhere, costing an absolute fortune, but achieving nothing, not achieving the extra speed you need, nor achieving the kind of levelling up, um, bringing the north and south together. It seems really odd and it's all very well you know if Rishi Sunak were a new government new prime minister coming in saying look the other lot have completely mismanaged this over 13 years I'm looking again at everything all the costs we really have to think again but he isn't his lot have been in charge for 13 years so if there is any mismanagement it's on their watch so I think the whole thing is becoming a bit of a mess. And I do wonder, uh, Libby, just in terms of the sort of chronology of all this, where, I mean, it feels like Number 10 and Rishi Sunak have been caught off guard by this. I mean, actually, you know, it's, it's not... because One of the things we've said for a long time is that this government didn't leak in the way that previous ones had. And then last week we had all the green stuff leaked. Then this is leaked. You know, you wonder leaked by someone who doesn't want it to be scrapped. So all the, all the, the outrage um, sort of mounts. And you just feel a bit like Rishi Sunak being buffeted by events on this. Well, there is. We, we have a national enormous problem of short-termism, which comes in my column today as well, regarding the electricity grid and the, the lack of proper planning over that. But I think we've, we've been through this sort of maelstrom of absolutely chaotic politics ever since uh, Boris night, uh, that strange night in 2019 when, when uh, it all began. And I think, I think you know, Rishi Sunak is, is buffeted around by all this. I think the point about HS2 is interesting because clearly they just started the wrong end. You know, it would have been better to have started connecting Manchester and Birmingham and connecting up the north uh, because there's a perfectly good train service to Birmingham already. Uh, but, you know, it, it's uh, they're now sort of stuck in this ridiculous situation, as as, um, as, as we've just been, been saying, you know, that there will be a completely useless, stupid little London suburb to Birmingham trip, uh, you know, which doesn't make things any faster because you don't have to get on the Elizabeth line if it's running correctly and to get into the centre of town. It, it's, it's, it's an absurdity. Uh, but it, it is all of it's a fall it all goes back to Boris Johnson's leadership I mean before that a very sort of complacent 
idle Cameron leadership, but it's the chaos we've been through. I, I think almost any political party would have struggled to straighten things out. It's interesting. This is a, a quote which has been doing the rounds uh, a lot today uh, from uh, November 2017. London has Crossrail. The Midlands is getting HS2. And now we in the north need the government to back Northern Powerhouse Rail. The government's £300 million down payment is certainly welcome, but we need to show a lot more to show the people of the north the government mean business. And that was from a young MP called Rishi Sunak. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even he was then making the point. It's one thing, you know, and Libby's completely right, that the, the great benefit, and Paul, I spoke to Paul Johnson about this from the IFS, he was making this point, like the, to some extent, if you've built the Birmingham bit, the va- added value was the beyond... Bit. Otherwise, you've just got a really expensive second line to Birmingham. Exactly. And I, I think I heard Paul's interview. I thought it was very interesting. If You know, you, the, people always say you wouldn't start from here. And maybe you wouldn't have commissioned HS2 if you were now looking at the number of people working from home, the way in which you can Zoom rather than having to actually travel to your meetings. But now that it's started, it, as Libby says, it seems absurd to end up with this kind of halfway house. And there is also a problem of the sort of wider capacity of the rail network. That's what all the experts seem to say. If we don't build this one, then we're going to have huge problems on the rest of the rail network. And costs are going to go up of the rail tickets. And also the cost of building this northern powerhouse rail, which yeah. links the northern um, towns and cities, is going to go up too. So I just think it's... It's as you said. It's back to this kind of short-term decision making. Nobody seems to think what, where do we want to be in twenty years? And this applies to education. This applies to health. They're just thinking, how do I get through the next week? How do I find a few billions down the back of the sofa to fund a nice giveaway at the election? Um, and actually, it's pathetic. So many of you have got in touch about this. Why didn't they start building HS two in the north, where the cost would be less and the impact? Greater, says someone. Uh, someone else says, uh, trains, trains, trains. Manchester is in the north. Ha! There was a tiny clockwork train between Newcastle and Carlisle and a single carriageway road between Newcastle and Edinburgh. Manchester's on the M6, for goodness sake. We need real investment in the real north. Uh, Kevin says, connect up the northern and midland cities first before spending massive amounts of money on a project with nebulous, nebulous benefits at best. I suppose the problem is... Kevin, they already have. They've started, you know, and, and I feel like we've been around this block before when the Tories had a party conference in Birmingham. There was an argument whether or not to go with it. Head with HS2. And you could literally go across to the other side of Birmingham and see the massive hole in the ground. I mean, uh, this has been going on for decades. Yeah. You know, this was, it was the Blair government that first started yeah. all of this. So it just seems ridiculous. Um, and Libby, you made the point as well, the, the same is also true of energy, you know, and goes back to the net zero argument uh, last week and which is up putting off the, uh, the 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 deadlines for cars and boilers and so on. But there's no point putting them off. You don't then do anything with the time you give yourself. Well, absolutely. But but also, the, I mean, the, the short termism is is worrying. I mean, I, I wrote my column today about a, a particular thing, just an illustrative example of just near us, uh, that they, there's a huge, going to be a huge amount of um, bulldozering along the East Coast, rather than the sort of precious marshes and all the rest of it, uh, if this particularly goes on. But one of the reasons given uh, was that there wasn't an overall plan, that, that, you know, the reason that National Grid sort of has to do this is because somebody else has agreed that 
possibly there might be a substation there and all the rest of it. And one of the guys just sadly said to me at this consultation, he said, look, if, if there was an overall plan, if somebody had looked at the massive new need for electricity and the new shape the grid is going to have to have because of electric cars, because of these heat pump things, you know, because of the enormous extra cost of streaming, entertainment streaming, domestically now we are using up more and more and more electricity. And this means the grid has to be different. The grid has to be not just going to some big industrial centres. It's got to go just about to every home in the country. And this has not been thought through. It just, you know, it, it isn't there. And we have had, I think, six energy secretaries mm. over seven years. You know, that that does not sort of suggest anybody with a real grip on the problem. And this, I think, I mean, short-termism is the one thing we really have to look at yeah. in this country. And maybe some form of coalition, some form of agreement, you know, on certain things. There should be a lot more inter-party, cross-party agreements on big plans rather than this endless sort of demonising the other side, which is... And in is fact, on, William Hager, I think, so much time column on. last week or the week before saying that when he was in the pensions minister, I think, in the dying days of the major government, he actually, Labour gave him some space because they knew something needed to be done about the, the, the pension age. Yeah. And they sort of all sort of stepped back and said, well, let him do the, the dirty work, but we're not going to sort of make um, capital out of it. And on higher education funding. There's, yes, exactly. There's tuition know, fees as well. They so put it, it up can past, work, yeah. but it requires leaders who are willing to be grown up. Yeah. Um, well, step forward, Sir Ed Davey. Uh, the Lib Dem conference is going on in uh, Bournemouth this week. Um, Libby, what's the point of the Lib Dems? <laughs> well, it's there's always, I mean, there's all this talk now about how they're, they're targeting the home counties and so on. There's always been a rather genteel following of the Lib Dems uh, on people who can't bring themselves to vote for those vulgar shouty Tories or the nasty socialist Labour. So it becomes a bit of a none of the above vote. Um, and if the Lib Dems will not come out with serious, costed, serious policies or saying we will go with Labour on this issue or we will go with the Tories on this issue, it just becomes a rather wet kind of vote. I mean, I, I know quite a few people who are tied into it um, and and it's a shame. It's it's a waste. It's a particularly wet vote at the moment after um, he was tipped out of a kayak. <laughs> by one of his, by own, one of his own candidates. Party. That seems very odd. Yeah, yeah, so he was doing a... Uh, <laughs> it was a, a yellow kayak, it to was be a fair. Yellow it kayak. was a yellow kayak. <laughs> but it was a yellow kayak designed, I think, to, again, to highlight the issues of sewage and rivers and the sea. And, uh, yeah, the candidate, I think from Eastbourne, tipped him out of it for the benefit of the cameras, which probably wasn't what they were looking for. Uh, um, Rachel, the point of the Lib Dems? Well, I think Libby's right. There's a sort of protest vote element. Um, the thing that's interesting between now and the general election is what happens to tactical voting uh, in, and does their uh, sort of anti-Tory alliance develop? either formally or it won't be formally but informally where people work out who is best placed to beat the conservative candidate uh, and vote either for the Lib Dems or Labour and you are starting to see that already a bit at the by-elections although in mid-Bedfordshire that's broken down in Nadine Doris's seat both Labour and the Lib Dems are sort of going all guns blazing because they don't want to cede the territory. Um, but actually I was talking to the pollster Peter Kellner the other day on um, Pinot and Friends, and he was saying there are very few seats actually where it isn't clear 
which yeah, yeah, opposition yeah. party is best placed. So I think that tactical voting is going to be a huge factor at the next election. Yeah, that actually mid-beds is, is an anomaly. Yeah. It's a sort of three-way split. Yeah. And that's there are only half a dozen or yeah, so yeah, yeah. seats like that. And the, the reason the Lib Dems, although they're much further behind, the reason the Lib Dems think they're in, they, they should be the ones voting for that is because they think there's a ceiling to Labour votes in some places. It doesn't matter how much people dislike the Tories, they're never those people aren't ever going to vote Labour. So they think they can hoover up all of the don't like the Tories and the Labour vote and the Lib Dem vote, which they think is higher than than Labour. And the, but they think there were like 80 seats where they're in second place behind the Tories. And if they could take half of those, I mean, that would, you know, transform the... Uh, um, the election, but I don't know if uh, if Libby, you think that the Lib Dems are going to play a big part in in the in the political scene after the next election. Well, it, it might work. I mean, I, I I was I was very excited by the coalition, to be honest. But then the coalition turned out to be the basically the the Lib Dems being rolled over by by David Cameron and um, losing their USP. You know, all the the things they had to consent to, uh, which were absolutely against Lib Dem principles, and that, that lost them some votes. So, I mean, I but I would like to see. I I just want to see some issues on which people really can get their heads together and stop this this sort of one side two side you know choir stall politics which is so depressing yeah it's interesting when i spoke to vince cable earlier he said he thought the coalition was good for the country just not for the lib dems and you sort of wonder whether well actually the, the answer to that is to handle the politics of that better given that i think you know it proved despite you know they took the country through a huge period of austerity and then uh emerged uh or at least it always did anyway emerged from it well shaking it off. Can Taylor Swift swing an election? Uh, she's been posting online, urging her followers to get registered to vote. It's already had a massive impact apparently. Well, who better to speak to than Ellie McCausland, who runs a Taylor Swift literature course at Ghent University. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Matt. Um, take us through what Taylor Swift has been doing and what impact that's had. Yeah, well, so this isn't the first time that she's done this. Um, the first time that she really kind of intervened in politics was in 2018, when she came out publicly and urged her followers to vote in the, the US midterm elections, um, because she was really unhappy with the way that things were going in, in Tennessee, um, her kind of home hometown, um, or the home state. And um, yeah, yeah, and so she, it, it was, you can see this on the uh, Miss Americana Netflix documentary about Swift. She, it was a big move for her to finally kind of be outspoken about politics and her team were initially quite against it, you know, because she hadn't gone on the record and talked about politics thus far. So they were curious and kind of concerned about what the, the media impact would be. Um, and it did have a huge effect back then. I think it was referred to as the Swift lift, the kind of optic uh, in, in voter numbers, particularly among young voters. And yeah, we can see this having an effect um, right now. Again, um, I think you know she's urging young people to vote, and there's been a kind of explosion in in the younger generation registering to vote and getting involved in politics. So it's not the first time she's done it, but I think the numbers are even bigger now because her fame has skyrocketed recently. Yeah, so she wrote online uh, to her fans. I've been so lucky to see many of you guys at my US shows recently. I've heard you raise your voices, and I know how powerful they are. Make sure you're ready to use them in our elections this year. It led to uh, more than 150,000 people visiting the site, the biggest uh, number since uh, 2020. Uh, there was a 72% increase in 18-year-old registrations, 
compared to 2019, and more than 35,000 people registered. Ellie, is she explicit about who she wants them to then vote for? No, she's pretty careful, I think, about remaining as, well, I think it's it's, it's kind of, it's a sort of open secret, I suppose, that Swift herself um, aligns with a lot of democratic values, but she, as, as far as I've noticed, is quite careful about remaining as neutral as possible. You know, she urges her her followers and her fans to vote, but she doesn't go as far as telling them who to vote for or what, or what kind of she believes in, because I think that's, uh, I think that is probably something that she doesn't want to get involved in in terms you know for the for the backlash and for what that would do to her own media appearances and I imagine her team are also part of this so um no it's more it's more sort of urging young people to get out there and have an opinion have a political opinion and get involved exactly um, I suppose by by dint of demographics that probably favors the democrats anyway Rachel yeah that's what I was going to ask um Ellie what this kind of reaction has been because if you have more younger voters registering typically they'd be more likely to support the democrats wouldn't they has there been a much of a backlash from the republicans um I mean obviously it's fantastic the more people who register the, to vote the better uh however that's done but I'm interested in what the political uh reaction has been yeah, I mean, I have to say I'm, you know, I don't tend to follow the, the kind of, I don't tend to follow Republican politics that much. Um, uh, but I think, I know certainly back in 2018 when she got involved, there was a bit of backlash, you know, sort of saying, oh, we don't like it when when kind of stars get involved in in politics because, you know, what do they know? They don't, they're not experts, they're not involved. Um, I would say that I, I think ultimately, yeah, if you're, in, if you're encouraging the younger generation to vote, especially the younger generation that align with Swift's own values you are looking at an uptick in democratic voters um and I think if there even if there were backlash to be honest there is uh, there's backlash against Swift for for all sorts of things that I think <laughs> it would be absorbed into the general the media noise and I'm not sure she I think she would just shake it off to be honest <laughs> and I suppose also there's the, the flip side is that there is a risk if you're a politician and now attacking her because she's so massive and you yeah. know, and the, the overlap between her country roots and Republican politics, you know, so it, it maybe maybe there's a sort of uneasy truce between the two. Uh, Libby, can you imagine uh, someone uh, a sort of famous? Maybe the exception, you know, is Carol Valdeman Britain's answer to Taylor Swift? <laughs> but celebrities getting sure. involved in politics in the UK, it doesn't, it, you know, they they seem very squeamish about it. It's pretty much Angela Rippon at the moment, isn't it? I mean, anyone can touch their, <laughs> touch their nose with their leg. No, of course, everyone should vote. I mean, great for Taylor Swift. And I'd rather favour the system they have, I think, think in Australia or somewhere where you're penalised for not voting at all. You've got to turn up even if you just spoil your paper. I think it is it is a civic duty. And I think it's fantastic that she's getting, you know, getting them to register. Good honour. Yeah, in uh, in big numbers as well. Uh, well it'll be fascinating to see what, what, what difference it makes and, yeah, whether or not not uh, by getting more people to sign up. It leads to a change in the outcome of the action. Ellie, really good to speak to you. Ellie McCall's in there, who runs a Taylor Swift-inspired literature course at Ghent University. I suspect, Rachel, that's the sort of course that certain Tory MPs would not like. Yeah, but I'm sure it sounds really fascinating. I suspect it's probably quite popular as yeah. well. Lovely to see you. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And don't forget, if you are a student, you're starting at university right now, you can get a subscription for a year for £9.99. Uh, just go online and search for that. Right, up next, it's the do's and don'ts of party conferences.
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, Matt Cholly, we're taking a look at party conferences, uh, how you approach them, how do you do them well, how do you do them badly? So if we're looking at the do's and don'ts of party conferences, who better to ask them? Two people who've been there, done that, based on almost everything at party conferences. Aisha Hazawika, of course, now Times Radio presenter, former Labour Party advisor. Hi, Aisha. Hello. And Katie Perry, former Director of Communications for Theresa May when she was uh, Prime Minister. But, Katie, you're such a kind for punishment. You now go when you don't need to with your famous in-house, I was going to say tent. That's not the right word, is it? Lounge. Lounge, Matt. Good. Um, lovely to speak to you. But, uh, yes. I am gutting for punishment. Um, it's showbiz for ugly people, isn't it? Party conference, we love it. We can't get enough of it. It's, it's nerd central. And um, the people that moan about it, oh, I don't want to go, they are straight there through the security cordon, ready to do their super uber networking. Uh, and so I won't, I won't hear of it when people say that they don't want to be there because they do secretly. Well said, Katie. I couldn't agree more. I always liken it to... You know, when you've got like a really dodgy family wedding and you're slightly kind of dreading it, but everyone's just basically going to get smashed and it will kick off at some point. Like that is basically party conference. Okay, let's talk do's and don'ts then. Uh, What is your advice, first of all, for a politician at their party conference over the next couple of weeks, Aisha? Well, I would say, depending on their level of, of seniority, I think if you're a senior politician you're uh, somebody that's going to have lots of uh, engagements in the diary I think you have to be meticulous in, in your planning you have to make sure that your team has sort of locked down in your diary well in advance what you're doing and you have to really pace yourself I think what a lot of people don't realize particularly and this will be the same with the conservatives but particularly with Labour Party conference when I was working with Harriet Harman she was deputy leader of the party most evenings she'd have to go to about 10 different receptions and make speeches. And a key piece of advice is when you're giving your boss the note, make sure the title of the group is really well like laid out at the top. I do remember one um, reception that we went to and how it was like, it is so amazing to be at the Southwest Regional Reception. There is nobody else like the Southwest. And they were like, no, no, you're, you're not at the Southwest Reception. <laughs> <laughs> it just becomes a bit of a blur, basically. So you've got to like, you've actually got to stay quite with it. It's like being a bit of a kind of political show pony and athlete at these things. You've got to go around. You've got to be smiling. You've got to be nice to everybody. You, you, you've got to really pace yourself. You need a lot of energy. 
I mean, that sense of being, I think if you're a politician, this is definitely true, you're always on. And actually, I mean, even to some extent, when I go to party conference now, because, you know, nobody knows who I am at all, but the nerds who go to party conference, they listen to Times Radio, they read the column or whatever, and there's always a slight thing that you're just standing there like really slagging someone off and somebody comes, oh, is you Matt Shorty from Times Radio? So that you've got, you have got to be your best behaviour. You have to be your best behaviour. Um, Katie, your do's and don'ts of politicians. Well, I do also think that being on the record is really, really important. I always find that the news stories at party conference are never the ones you're anticipating. So when you're doing the prep with politicians, you, you're trying to do your hostile Q&A. You're trying to think about all the things that might come that might you know, throw you off course. It's always the stuff you can't predict or that you look around corners because someone said something stupid at drinks reception. Someone said something stupid in a corridor. Or you've just, you know, someone um, has been picked up. You just don't know who you're around the whole time, right? You are opposite a newspaper editor. You're chatting to someone who um, is, is even there from a different political party. People don't really know this outside of the bubble, but uh, each political party will send someone from their party to a, a rival party's conference. So you really don't know who you're talking to. So it's wise to stay off the alcohol to at least a little bit later on in the evening when you think you can relax a little bit more, but always remember your record. One of my jobs early on, really early on uh, working in politics, was to make sure the politician went to bed when they said they were going to, alone. And so I was my job. <laughs> Is this when you were working for Boris? I couldn't possibly comment. I <laughs> My job would be, right, at the end of the day, on top of all the other things I'd have to do, because it wasn't my only job, obviously, uh, to make sure that I got them to the hotel room, got them through the door, you swipe the card, right, I'll see you at breakfast, okay, we've got everything you need for your briefings, excellent, wonderful, have a great night's sleep, I'll see you later. And I'd hide around the corner, and I'd wait for them to give 10 minutes until they give me the slip and come back out again, and I'd jump <sighs> out like their mother and go, I don't think so. It's like, you? I was going to say, it's like putting a toddler to bed. <laughs> Again, was this when you were working for Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's, you know, if you want to make sure that you're not going to get phone call at two o'clock in the morning because your politician doing something you shouldn't be doing and they're going to be there bright and early for that really important breakfast, then you've got to really make sure they are going to do that. Uh, and so, yes, um, it was all kinds of roles and responsibilities that I hadn't quite anticipated when I wanted to go and work in for a career in politics. Having done the do's and don'ts, we need to talk about when things go wrong and I'm going to get you both to revisit moments which might be slightly triggering uh, Aisha let's start with you 2014 Ed Miliband's big speech he decides to deliver it without notes because he'd memorised it but it turned out he hadn't we're ready Labour's plan for Britain's future let's make it happen together thank you very much I've literally got my hands like over my, my mouth at the moment uh, that was such a horrendous moment because Ed had done a very good speech the year before. And, you know, the other thing, the pressure on party leaders for conference speeches is absolutely incredible. I mean, Matt, you and I have both done uh, stand-up. We've both done shows. It's a bit like doing a sort of one-woman, one-man show. The pressure is on. And Ed, the year before, had actually done this very good one-nation speech, which he had memorised. And because he'd memorised, you know, it got this brilliant reception. So he wanted to do it again. But the pressure was was really on. You know, we're running up into that election period. The pressure was really on us on a number of, of issues. You know, uh, the, the Scottish referendum had just um, happened. And of course, the economy was a really, really weak point for us. We were getting hammered by the Tories. You can't trust them on the economy. The deficit's going to go up. And the really, really important section that Ed just missed out was 
the section on the deficit and I was sort of standing at the side of the hall with with, with lots of the other advisors and of course we had you know helped craft this speech we'd helped rehearse the speech we all kind of knew it inside out and so we were like trotting it through trotting it through and then he just skipped that passage and we all just were like looking at each other in absolute horror and of course all the journalists we were with all the journalists so we had to have a slight poker face but we were all like kind of reaching for like hands and just going oh my god like what has just happened and he just completely forgot that and I think my strong advice would be you don't have to memorize your conference speech and and I think it's so high wire and it's such an important moment that um yeah that, that was a really 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 it was on those moments where you're just in the moment and you're just like this is really really awful and poor Ed everybody was completely traumatized afterwards and of course we had to brief out the deficit section afterwards but of course <laughs> that was just a gift to the Tories at the time because they were like ah they don't even care exactly. about the deficit if they forgot about it anything if he'd missed out the thing about bus deregulation that would have been annoying but you know just a mistake because this seemed to speak to precisely the great weakness for the Labour Party at that point which was on the economy and on the deficit and he was so so untrustworthy on this he couldn't be bothered remembering I mean the thing is Katie that's literally the worst thing that's ever happened to a party leader delivering a speech at conference isn't it it is and um you don't recover from it very easily <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely the worst it's definitely the worst there's definitely nobody's I mean, had a worse conference speech no. than that is there Katie no, definitely not. Um, listen, I'm, um, I, I was very lucky in, in some regards because uh, I'd, I'd worked with Theresa May previously um, and actually I did the um, nasty party speech with her uh, and we knew it was going to kind of really kind of, you know, make some waves, but didn't realise we'd be talking about it 15 years later. So this is, so when, actually, she, this is when she told the party some hard truths, essentially, having not long been in opposition that, you know, we have a problem, we have an image problem and some people call us the nasty party. Yeah, and of course she said... I don't think you're nasty. I see you working really hard day in, day out. But some people think we are and we have to do work hard to change that. Uh, she spent the next year going around the rubber chicken circuit telling local conservative associations that she didn't call them nasty. Uh, and it was really, really difficult to recover from. Can I just say at one point that I think she deserves a lot of credit for making that intervention because it's very, very difficult to call out your own party and deliver some home truth. It's particularly difficult if you're a woman in politics. So even though Theresa May and I have very different, you know, politics, I thought she was very brave. And I think actually history's judged her quite kindly for making that intervention. But of course, yeah. there were other things that didn't go so well. Oh, like, you know, some words falling off the back of the stage. Uh, someone giving you a P45 and trying to tell you you're sacked. Uh, and uh, also you're coughing, coughing all the way your through. Coughing your guts up. Yep. <coughs> <coughs> Public sector working together. Why, <coughs> why we will never... <coughs> and we... <coughs> Poor Theresa May. Um, I was watching this live on the BBC and commentating. Um, about three minutes before she went to stand up to speak, uh, one of her speechwriters ran past and said to me, it was pulled an all-nighter like you know I looked I know I look terrible I, you know it's gone right to the wire and I thought oh god the last time I, I did a speech with Theresa May she went to bed at 10 30 I mean I went out on the karaoke and like, you know <laughs> but uh, I thought well that's not great because Theresa May does like to get an early night after she's like locked down the wording and she knows what she's going to say so this isn't this is already giving me the heebie-jeebies so I'm sitting there live on air waiting for the reaction and my face apparently is just a picture or I, my chin's kind of just dropping going oh, how do you recover from this? How do you recover from this? I actually give her credit for a quick-witted joke. Um, and Theresa May has a better sense of humour, you know, one-to-one -one than she ever, ever does the minute a camera goes on. 
But when she just when when um, uh, the chancellor offered her a cough suite, she said, well, "That's the only thing you're ever going to get out of that man." I, I hope you notice that, ladies and gentlemen, the chancellor giving something away free. <laughs> and I actually thought, oh, you know, you could you could stand there crying, you could stand there and look like the, the world has ended. And indeed, when she came off the stage, and apparently she was surrounded by her team to say to her, "Look, you know, are you okay?" and we expected her to burst into tears. And she was, apparently she was okay. And, and she was saying, look, you know, these things happen. It's obviously a bit of a disaster and I'm obviously really disappointed, but you know, no one died. Uh, and so, and so took it on the chin and, and, and moved on. But conference, there's too much emphasis goes on to conference speeches. Um, you're playing to an audience in the room that does not match the audience at home. And you've got to find a way to be able to make sure that, you know, you, you keep people in the room happy, but you also get to the audience at mm. home. That's a really good and point. I that. And just follow, I think the other thing which is really true of conference speeches, I think some of the kind of thrill and magic of being in the moment in the room has gone because most strategists are savvy enough to know that actually, particularly at this point in the electoral cycle, we're like we're like a year away from a, a general election. This could be the last set of conferences before the general election. The strategists are very much like you're not really playing to the people in the room. You're playing to the TV cameras. You're trying to get in to people's front rooms. Or now you're trying to get into the palm of people's hands or on their phone. And with the social media clips and things like that, it does feel that, you know, there was a while, like I remember when I first started going to conference and you'd be in the hall and it was quite an electric sort of atmosphere because it was like, wow, this is like being in this incredible moment where you're only really going to feel the magic in the room. That's very much change now and I think as well the let's be honest we don't live in an era of amazing political oratory any anymore and I think I feel a bit sad that conference speeches are not quite the big deal that they use that they use they're very much a television event they're very much now right what are the clips that we want for the six and the ten and the social media clips that's the only thing that really matters uh, that was Aisha as a week, of course, from Times Radio and uh, Katie Perry uh, now from in house. So, never mind the party conferences. The big thing that everyone wants to get to is the party conference parties. The two biggest parties at the party conferences are the Spectator Party at the Conservatives and the Mirror Party at Labour. So, let's speak to the gatekeepers of the guest list Katie Balls, political editor for the Spectator. Hi, Katie. Hello. And John Stevens, please go to the mirrors here. Hi, John. Hi, Matt. Can I just correct you on one thing uh, for people listening? I'm not sure I'd refer to myself as the gatekeeper. If someone does get an invite, I very much am. It was all about me. <laughs> I said I wanted them on the list. If someone is snubbed and doesn't get an invite, it's not to do not with me at all. Nothing well, to this do. I, I would like to echo John's comments there. <laughs> I agree with him. So this is what I want to talk about, Katie, is that uh, in the run-up to party cover season, when you could be, I don't know, interviewing cabinet ministers, getting scoops, trying to work out if anyone's ever going to get a train to Manchester, instead, you're dealing almost exclusively with complaints about why people haven't got invites to the spectator party. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where you often feel as though you're making more enemies than friends um, by working for a publication that has a party with a finite number of people that can be in the room. Um, so it, it does tend to be more requests than not. Uh, and often uh, the simple answer is it is above your pay grade to get them in. <laughs> now explain... explain why the Spectator Party is the hot ticket at Tory Coffers, Katie, when essentially it's like all the other events. It's in a windowless hotel room. It's very hot and it's with the same people who've been at every other event. So why why do you think the Spectator is so, uh, so much of a hot ticket? 
Yeah, I mean, effectively, as you say, there's two sides to conference. So there's the very um, public where the cameras is, the speeches that we cover, um, which I think Taisha's point earlier, most people don't listen to the full block, but I'm going to the various fringes. And then I think around 5pm, it switches and people start to get quite sweaty and concerned that they are missing out on an invite to a room, uh, which a lot of people uh, who they've probably seen the previous night are also in. Um, And I think the (laughs) the reason this spectator parties are so demandable I mean obviously I'm completely biased um but I think you know sometimes we put flowers in the room that's a pretty extra step. <laughs> oh you dress the room um, I see yeah there's also I think it's fair to say that um probably the main reason if you ask some people why they want to come to our party is um conferences associated with quite warm wine um whereas we serve cold um champagne normally that's what's tradition for the spectator long before I even got here um, and I think therefore probably the higher quality of beverage is also an enticing factor and then I think it's a sense of course that you want to speak to the people there. So uh, flowers and a fridge is what they've got the spectator what makes the mirror so good John? We don't have flowers, I don't think, but we may do. I'm not aware of it because obviously I'm slightly hands off. But um, <laughs> maybe we're frantically, we order, frantically ordering flowers charge. now. You might be in charge of the flower. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, if I am, we're in trouble. Um, I mean, the mirror one. It is quite similar to many parties, but the one thing it does have, which is different, is it's often later at night, and it does has have karaoke. And this year we do have the bonus that Labour are going second. Our party's on the Tuesday night after Keir's speech, which realistically most people go home on the Wednesday. So it's basically the one big blowout yeah. night at the end of conference season. And it's, it's a live band karaoke. It is, yeah. yeah. It's proper stuff. Yeah. What's, what will you be singing? Well, you know, I cannot reveal my complete set list at this time. <laughs> um, some thought will need to go into that. Okay. Uh, Katie, for the spectators doing a party at Labour as well this year, is that a sign that you can see which way the political wind is blowing? I think that's uh, obviously um, what lots of people might read from it. I mean, I think we're probably quite a broad church. Um, We've done lots of it. I think clearly the spectator is more like associated with the Tory party and the party there. Um, But we've interviewed lots of Labour politicians. So I think we thought, why not? Though purposely are not going up the same night as the Mirror Party um, because uh, I think we are aware that um, the Mirror Party is what is triumphant and key at Labour Conference Um, because both the Mirror and the uh, Spectator Parties are on the Tuesday night late which I think adds to it which is that sense of almost letting loose after um, normally you're run down with coals and it's a bit of a virus super spreader event too. (laughs) Yeah instead you're going up against the new statesman which is an entirely different battle. I actually think if you look at the specific timings it's completely possible to attend both events oh, um, and spend over two hours at each so <laughs> I, I, I would query oh, that God. analysis god uh right let's talk about the uh um the bones of the conferences then what is your expectation of the concert the daytime at conservative party conference uh katie will rishi sunak use his party conference speech in Manchester to tell Manchester they're not getting a high-speed rail line, for instance. Yeah, well, we were actually just discussing in the editorial conference we had what to what to expect in terms of where Rishi Sunak goes next with his hard truths. Obviously, he's gone for net zero. And I, and I did make the point, as you just alluded to, that it'd be pretty bold to decide that's where you're going to say it in Manchester. So I think if there's an HS2 announcement, it's either this week prior to it or you push it back to after conference. As, as, as brave and straight talking as Rishi Sunak may want to be, I think his team could probably see the, the big issue there. And therefore, I think the question is, we know what 
the narrative is it's about doing politics in a different way. The question is, are the policy announcements going to be much bigger than what we've had already on net zero? I think there'll be a few more, but maybe not at the same scale. It's just really hard, isn't it, John, for a Conservative Prime Minister, they've been in power for 13 years, to start telling us hard truths about why the things they said they were going to do, they're not going to do till later. Yeah, and I think that clearly... Rishi Sunak's keen for this conference not to be about Tory rows, not for it to be a repeat of last year. Remember when that brief oh, period, that brief period when Liz Truss was in, and it seemed like any fringe you went to, there was some Tory minister or MP being very negative about the party and ripping some part of policy apart. Rishi Sunak was keen not to repeat that. That's why he delayed holding his big reshuffle because he didn't want there to be loads of ex-ministers mm. touring round fringes criticising his policy. But whether he announces HS2 before or after conference, I think you are going to see a debate at conference about whether that's a good idea and whether that is betraying the North and delivering what they promised on levelling up. It'd be interesting, yeah, you're right. It'd be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, it'd be quite difficult for it not to be a bit quiet in the last year's party. When we had sort of cabinet ministers queuing up to come on the radio to <laughs> take issue with certain things the government was doing and then it all just sort of collapsed around their ears. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully Labour Conference won't have the repeat of the pounding, whatever it was doing last year in the mortgage yeah. markets going haywire. So I think, yeah, it's probably quite likely that both are slightly calmer than the mayhem of last conference season. So what do you think, or what does the Mirith would like to see from Keir Starmer's potentially last party conference before an election? So I think there's clear policies that the Mirror would love to see in a Labour manifesto, things like universal free school meals. I don't think that is something that is likely to be announced by Keir Starmer in his conference speech. I think basically for Labour, their task is to look like a government in waiting and offer enough policy detail that they can show what direction they're going without splurging out their whole manifesto way ahead of time. What, and what do you think, uh, Katie, from the other side of the fence? What would you expect to see from Keir Starmer's Labour Party? Well, I think Keir Starmer and his team still want to ultimately answer that question, you know, which is, if not them, why us? Because I think you can clearly see from the polls that if not them, uh, there's lots of reasons people don't want to vote Tory. But it, I think it's still getting to the point of why, say, Rishi's hard medicine worked, big if, to a degree that Labour would have enough to fall back on, which is positive reasons to vote Labour, which is always the harder bit and easier said than done. But I think, you know, advancing it to have a sense of what Keir Starmer would do in office and who he is as a politician is something that is important because also it's going to make it harder for those Tory attacks we know are coming, which is this idea that Keir Starmer is shifty and cannot be trusted. Um, so anything they can do in terms of who he is, I think is quite important. And Katie, what about the, the comments which are sort of bookending this period? We've got the Lib Dems going on right now. We've got the SNP the other side of the Labour Party conference, how well they work as a political machine and a campaigning machine will also have a big impact ultimately on, well, on whether or not uh, Keir Starmer ends up as the biggest party or, or even with a majority. Yeah, completely. I'm hoping to head to Bournemouth shortly. Um, but... I think obviously the Liberal having waited Democrat... to check the weather forecast, presumably. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's a few decisions, final decisions that have to be made. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that you know one of the Lib Dems issues is they tend to get squashed in a national campaign. So you see all these by-election victories and they look very promising, but then also the Liberal Democrats can overshoot and say, you know, actually we've done quite well in the local elections. We can oust Michael Gove in his Surrey seat, and then they stretch themselves too thinly. I think on the SNP, obviously it's very important to Keir Starmer, the Scottish Labour recovery 
is seen by his team as key to winning a majority and therefore the Rutherglen by-election you would expect and I think Scottish Labour figures will say it's going pretty well but you'd expect them to take it but that's almost a bare minimum to take a by-election seat from the SNP and it's whether they can you know keep that up and transfer uh, you know, transport the SNP votes over. Um, at that point, I think, you know, you'd start to see that really the political weather is uh, turning in Keir Starmer's favour. Uh, somebody's just texted in, uh, John, is there much copping off and snogging in dark corridors at conferences? And do members from other political parties try and gate crash ever? Oh, I don't... Honestly, I don't think I've witnessed much of the um, former there at conference. Um, I'm sure it does go on. There was someone, there was an unnamed journalist who um, weren't always on shift, so their employer didn't provide accommodation for them for the duration of the conference, but they somehow managed to find accommodation for the duration <laughs> of the conference, if you know what I mean. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sure it goes on in some dark corners, just maybe not I definitely remember, and may, maybe this is why Katie's making the journey to Bournemouth. I've definitely heard of, in the past, skinny dipping going on, which is easier to yeah. do with a seaside conference than, than if you're in, I suppose it's always the Birmingham Canal. Yeah, that was meant to be a surprise. Um, there's always a spy at Tory and Labour conference. There's normally a secret agreement whereby each party is allowed to send one person and they let them in. Um, and I remember once having uh, that person, I, I let the Labour spy into our party um, because I thought, why not? And some people were a bit confused by that. <laughs> and the idea is that they, they then go around basically all the fringe meetings recording front benches saying stupid things and then they get dribbled out in the papers afterwards. Oh, yeah, and go around the stands finding that the hat that says vote Tory was actually made in China and all of that malarkey. Well, we look forward to that. Um, are you excited, John? Are you going to Bournemouth? I'm not going to Bournemouth, no. I'm mentally psyching myself for Tories and Labour. I am excited. I mean, every year I moan about it and whine and say, oh, it's awful, you're trying to do 14 things at once because you're balancing drinking, working, and a bit more drinking and working. Um, but actually, I will quite enjoy it. Well, the last trip toys have got COVID, and that was a bit of a There was a lot of COVID about that, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll avoid that. Are you looking forward to it, Katie? Yeah, I always enjoy conference season. And I find lots of people like to make a big thing about how they don't want to be there. But then they also seem to want to go to all the parties. So I'm consistent in enjoying it and wanting to do most things there. Well, best of luck. Uh, best of luck. I hope you survive it. I hope my invite to both of your parties is forthcoming imminently. Uh, Katie Balls, uh, political editor of the Spectator. Total silence there, deathly silence. Uh, and uh, John Stevenson, the Mirror. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. I'm off to Bournemouth for my birthday to play crazy golf with Ed Davey. Yeah, you can hear about that on the podcast tomorrow. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs> 